0: You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1957 film Wild Strawberries. Here we are, returning yet again, me and Eric, to discuss yet another Ingmar Bergman film. And once again, this was you picking the the film for us. Why'd you uh, center on this one?
1: Well, aside from the fact that it is one of his most famous movies, it's and also I actually thought it was earlier in his career. At the time when I proposed it, I thought it was a bit earlier than what it actually was. But that's fine. But so I was looking for something earlier. And when I embarked on my own Bergman journey, this was one of the very first ones I saw. And at the time when I saw it, I I hadn't fully figured out who Igmar Bergman was as a filmmaker yet. So I don't think I was yet prepared, and I I don't think I fully appreciated it as much as I was supposed to, because I got more in touch with the filmmaker with movies I saw after this one. Hmm. So I felt like okay, this is already a good one for someone who's being introduced to the filmmaker, but also I want to go back myself and reevaluate this one in particular.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I'll say, uh, I'd never even heard of this one until we started doing this stuff, and just looking up Igmar Bergman, seeing his his selection on the Criterion channel, like, oh, okay, Wild Strawberries, kind of an interesting title, but I didn't know anything about it, and... I guess, is this the earliest one that kind of introduces his more surrealist bent? Because I think...
1: Almost. Hmm. Because, and see, this is the part, I, when I first suggested this, I thought it came before Seventh Seal, um, but it turns out this actually came out right after Seventh Seal. So Seventh Seal definitely has some crazy surrealist ideas and concepts to contend with. Mm -hmm. So that actually came out in the same year as this movie, but earlier in the year.
0: Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, and I'm curious where to start with this one, because uh, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a little more played back than those those other ones that we watched, and more of a contemporary setting. This this old man kind of kind of realizing who he's been in his life after kind of fooling himself into.
1: So, so this guy is a. I mean, I think in the movie they say his character is supposed to be 85 years old. Um, which is really old because it's even a bit older than the actor himself. And he was no spring chicken himself in 1957 uh, when this movie came out.
0: I'd be surprised because he says that his mom's 96. I mean, I guess it was at that that time period she could have been a teenager. But
1: Oh, my mistake. It says here in Wikipedia his character is 76 years old. I don't know where I heard 85 in the movie. Yeah, I know. Okay, 76 makes more sense.
0: Yeah, Max Fonsito, I think he says his mom is 80 and then says that this guy's mom is 90, 95, so maybe he just got the two mixed.
1: Yeah, yeah, and his mom is incredibly old, or her yes. character. <laughs> but anyway, so this guy is apparently 76-year-old physician, um, and he needs to go to Lund, which is a city way in the south of the country, um, From I guess he's in Stockholm. And it's, it's a good drive away, and he needs to go down there to accept like this honorary award of being a physician for 50 years. Um, uh, but before, or the night before, he, go, he needs to go down there. He has this dream um, mm. that he remembers, and, and he's kind of a little bit shook by the dream, because it seems like the dream has like a lot of significance or meaning in it, even though he's not 100% sure what the actual meaning is supposed to be um but the, that's the first thing that's kind of gotten his head anyway he decides instead of going with the train plans or whatever they had to travel down south he decides he's going to drive instead and, and he's going to go alone um and everyone else is going to go by train but his daughter-in-law asks if she can go along with him anyway i mean i don't want to go through the whole synopsis but let's just say along the journey He's he's still like kind of in his thoughts about, about memories and things and things that were kicked off by the dream. Uh, so along the way, and and with also some of the characters they meet along the way, um, one of my initial thoughts about this movie, um, I don't know, perhaps even the first time I saw it, uh, was that in a in a way, for the listener at home who has no idea about Berg. Um, Bergman or this movie in particular, it's kind of like a Christmas Carol yes. type of story or tome, <laughs> but it's not as straightforward as something like the Christmas Carol. Yeah, but it is that idea of an older person reflecting on their life and different times in their life and and who they are now in the present and who they will be going forward.
0: Yeah, and in a way, these people that they that he meets on his journey kind of become. Or at least one of the the people that, uh, well, actually I guess, I guess more than one that that couple I feel like they play a couple different roles in his dreams.
1: Absolutely,
0: absolutely. So Yeah, and then they kind of yeah guide him and in a way put him on trial for who he's been. Mm-hmm. See, so, yeah, I was definitely thinking of Scrooge, in that case. Hundred percent. But
1: but again, this this stuff is not obvious. Like you're not going to be going, oh, this is a Christmas Carol. Like no, you have to kind of like you have to marinate on the whole thing a bit. Um, I I really think, and there's another thing for those of you who never really seen the Bergman movie, you know, I'm still such the novice myself when it comes to his body of work. And I, I have learned, because when I first started watching them, I would just put them on like I put on any movie. Mm -hmm. But I have since learned that if you're going to get like the full effect or whatever that is, I have to treat Bergman movies personally, almost like their homework, even when I'm just watching them like by myself, not for a podcast. I have to like. I feel like I have to take like some Adderall or something. I have to like <laughs> really pay attention because if I ever start trying to multitask, like play with my phone while a Bergman movie is playing, that it's completely doomed for failure. Like it, it, it never works. It never work. I cannot watch a Bergman movie for the first time with distraction because I will not. It'll just like fly over my head and I won't understand at all like what I was supposed to get out of it.
0: Yeah, and w- would you say that this one feels? just as dense as those previous ones in terms of like getting a grasp on what's going on? Or are you saying there's more like dense messages kind of tucked under the the surface a little bit more?
1: Tucked under the surface a bit more Hmm. because like I said, I did watch it the first time I went, Oh, okay. That's nice. That's quaint. I get it. Like I understood the broad strokes yeah, of, of the messaging, but certainly there's a lot more to mine there. A lot more if you really meditate on it and really think about it and break it apart, yeah, there's things that you have to dig for.
0: Yeah, and I was thinking that that might make this one more accessible for general viewers, because The Virgin Spring and Persona, I feel like both of those are kind of a high level of entry, just to get any enjoyment out of them. This one, I feel like you could pretty easily just go along with it and, and get the story. And the actors were all pretty captivating, so I think even if you're just watching it for fun, you'd still get a lot out of it.
1: Okay. I think you'd get something out of it. Yes, I'm just a, okay, it is what it is. But then if someone tells you, and this is true, that some people can, this, this is on the list of what is considered like all time greatest films. And I think to make sense of that, you have to become a very active participant mm-hmm. and you can't just just like view it as a normal movie. Because I don't think most quote-unquote general audiences would watch this and come away going what greatest movie of all time I don't think that's apparent um if you just watch as a casual viewer
0: yeah no like yeah I guess I guess I can see that yeah it's not like something like citizen Kane where I think anyone can watch that yes and see the the grand quality of it
1: exactly exactly my point yeah like you watch something like Citizen Kane, or Wizard of Oz, or Gone with the Wind, or whatever, even yeah. Casablanca, you can kind of sense that there's something special about those movies. This just seems like, oh, I was just watching TCM one day, and this random thing came on about this guy reminiscing, but you wouldn't think it was the greatest of all time type situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think I'll open up my uh, myself to a little bit of a bias here with this movie. I think I mentioned this on the podcast before. Maybe when we did uh, our discussion of Exodus 3. For whatever reason, I can just really get stuck into a place when I'm watching these stories about old men kind of reflecting on their lives, and especially grumpy, kind of bitter old men, which he somewhat is. And uh, yeah, so so right from the start, I was just pulled in by this character.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say the opposite.
0: (laughs) No, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I was actually thinking of a movie that this may have been an influence on, which I didn't realize, which is... uh, george romero's the amusement park a recently discovered film that was lost for like 40 years and it's about this elderly man it's all kind of a metaphorical film of just what kind of the experience is for these people who are so old where they really can't take care of themselves anymore being pulled in a world where they're all on their own completely and there's this great emphasis on loneliness and how much that can kind of cripple people and so watching this i was like oh wow here's a movie that i didn't realize would directly influence things that I've already seen this, this kind of movie I didn't even know existed until last year so, so that, that was fun
1: that's very interesting and I, 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 will, I will want to do more research later to see if there is any connection because there's at least four separate Woody Allen movies <laughs> that where he was directly inspired by this movie
0: oh wow so, <laughs> wow.
1: so yeah Woody Allen has four and what sucks is that All four of them are still ones I have yet to see. Um, From because it's uh, they say um, Stardust Memories, Another Woman, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and Deconstructing Harry. But all those by Woody Allen were like directly influenced by this movie.
0: Wow, the only one of those that I'd heard of is uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors. There's so many Woody Allen movies that I just feel like just slipped right through the cracks for me. Don't even know they exist. Well, what did you think with this this kind of story? Because I do feel like a story like this could easily put off a younger audience.
1: Oh, no doubt. No doubt.
0: People don't want to stew on old age. And
1: it also, I mean, it's very easy to also remember me as being a younger person. And you just it, it's virtually impossible as a younger person to really grasp what older people thoughts really feel like. I mean, I'm barely starting to learn about that in my current life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I just imagine, like, you know, being even older uh, than my current age, how how, it's got, how those feelings will morph and change with time. And when you're a younger person, and I mean someone in their 20s or younger, you just can't even fathom. It's it just, yeah. you just can't. You just can't.
0: Oh, I loved uh, Sara's line, the second Sara. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, there's like, I can't imagine anything worse than being old. And one of her friends, they're <laughs> yeah. like, hey, don't be rude here.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Um, But another thing is, so, when you just watch a bunch of Bergman movies, there's very frequently an older generation character. Whether they're the main protagonist or not, whatever, there's always an older generation character. And there's always a character like that who is always telling the younger characters, like, you don't get it. You don't get it. So that's just like a thing already in so many Bergman movies like that there's always wisdom characters that have all this wisdom that nobody else can grasp. So that's almost like a Bergman trope. And it is so weird that this did come out months after seventh seal came out because that movie deals so much with um, like facing death. And this isn't necessarily about facing death, this particular movie, but it's still a relatable theme to that concept. Mm -hmm. And again, that's another thing about, uh, Ber- Bergman is definitely obsessed with eventually one day like meeting the maker and and, and all that business. Like I, it's just pervasive. So me seeing this it's just like yeah okay we get it. This is this is his wheelhouse. But it helps to know i guess some of the background into the making or writing of this movie for Bergman because most of Bergman's works are deeply personal, and most of the films he he directed, he wrote himself um, or adapted himself from from some other source material, mm-hmm. and he always, or not always, but usually includes a lot of personal details in his movies, whether from his past or what's currently going on in his life at the time, or a mixture of both. And this movie is rife with that kind of stuff, and it helps to know that it helps to know that. Um, the Borg character, even though the Borg character has the same initials as Igmar Bergman, uh, Isaac Borg. Um, even though there is that obvious clue. Bergman himself says that this character, while there's some parts of him in this Dr. Borg character. It's actually really him portraying his father in a character. Hmm. So, So Borg is Bergman's father. And I believe... The mother character who we do meet in the movie is also based upon his real mother. And when Dr. Borg reminisces on being a child at that summer home, it was definitely inspired by Bergman uh, reflecting on his own childhood summer getaways. Now, they didn't have a little resort like out in the woods as depicted here, but it was their own thing. Like he was reminiscing on his childhood summers um, with family. Um, but also, the actress who plays Sarah, or both Sarahs, I mean, she was really notable at the time. Uh, not, not just for being a popular actress in Swedish film, but Bibi but Anderson, she was Bergman's current muse. Um, and she had already featured a lot in his previous movies, including uh, Seventh Seal. Hmm. I told you, he always has a muse. Um, or at least from the movies I've seen. And when I say muse, she's more than a muse. I mean, she's a illegitimate partner of sorts. I mean, in real life. Um, And what's wild, no pun intended, but at this time in his life, Igmar Bergman was lamenting both, like, I don't know if he was on his second or third marriage at this point in his life, but whatever marriage he was on, it was... It was on the rocks and coming to an end. Simultaneously, the affair that he had ongoing with B.B., which started in 1955, was also on the rocks. So he was sad at the time that both his marriage and his mistress, like he was having issues with both. Um, and I can't even fathom. <laughs> I'm not that kind of a multitasker when it comes to relationships. I don't even know. I could barely deal with one breakup. I don't know how you how you deal with two breakups. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and I also don't know how these relationships worked, like these different muses and affairs he had throughout his career. Because even though they would come to an end and then he'd pick up a new muse, like he would still work with his exes. Mm-hmm. Like at the scene, not to skip around to the end, but at the end when he sees the family going onto the boat... At the very very end. Yeah. Like in his vision. Like, I, I wanna say one of his ex-wives is playing an extra in that group. Like, what the heck? Like, so he s- somehow maintains relations with his exes. And of course, BB, she's she's the um the older woman in persona that we watched.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that was what, like uh almost ten years after this, right?
1: Yeah, it was like about nine years, I wanna say. I think it was 66. And in that movie, the movie is all about his former muse with his at-the-time muse. Um, so that's even, like, it's, everyone must just get along.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. If you end the relationships in a way where everything's kind of okay, then, yeah, you can keep uh, keep those dynamics going.
1: Oh, And then I read that, yeah, and what I read, and this was confusing me, because it said one of the twins was his child from that previous wife. Well, what confused me was the part where it said one of the twins. Yeah. Because it seemed yeah. like the twins were twins. <laughs> like actual t- twins. But apparently that was one of his biological daughters from his previous wife.
0: Wow, that's surprising. Because, yeah, they they did look like twins. Maybe they just fooled us.
1: Yeah, I need to go back and look at it. And then I almost thought it was a parent trap situation. But, or it was like, but no, it, <laughs> I don't know. It says one of the twins. I, I Yeah, need to check that out.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I... I I froze it early on here on the the first surrealist scene the dream scene Mm -hmm. and that one definitely pulled me right away I was like oh wow I didn't realize that this was going to be one of these types of movies and I like that that's
1: another reason I suggested it for you
0: yeah I like the way he kind of sprinkles it in where it can still play as a more straightforward movie but it has this kind of surrealist kind of backbone to it and looking at it from that view you can see a lot more of the movie as more metaphorical than real. Like, for instance, the more that he picks up these passengers in his car, they more start to feel like elements of him rather than real characters in that way. And I feel like if you didn't have this early Surrealist scene kind of setting up those expectations, a lot of that stuff would play a little bit differently. Um, but I will say this this early Surrealist scene did leave me a little, a little cold. I wasn't quite sure how to read some of that stuff there. It didn't feel quite as... Uh, Quite as straightforward as some of the stuff in Persona felt when we were watching that last time. How, how did you react?
1: Well, kind of similar, similarly to you, which is I, I see it and I, I don't have the penchant for it that you do, but that doesn't mean I'm completely opposed to like these types of surrealist um, escapes. Um, but, but yeah, I, but I, I was struck the first time and the second time with, okay, I see this, but what the fuck does it mean? Yeah. (laughs) Like, and I don't really know for sure. And I highly recommend with these criterion Bergman releases, if it's available. Um, and this one is available. Uh, listen to the commentaries because, um, like for instance, seven seal completely perplexed me the first time, first couple times I tried to watch it. But when I watched it with the commentary, the commentary completely held my hand, uh, and, and got me through seventh seal and with this movie in particular um the commentary really helps with the uh, hmm. the surrealist moments there's no doubt about that so I, and i definitely cheated i mean after i watched it again i i went back and did the whole commentary route because like for instance i mean i was stuck just on one of the first images we see which is just the clock with no hands Hmm. I, I didn't even know what that meant. Apparently, that is a literary trope, a bit out there. Oh, um, well, it's not a, its not a universally established trope, but it is something that has been done in other things. Now, I'm, I don't know if Bergman was using it the same way as previous or other people did, um, but I mean, it's certainly a thing. Like, what do you think that means? Um, clock with no hands.
0: Ah. Uh... I was I was trying to think of what what it could mean, especially with the eyes underneath. But I don't know it. It was making me think of, of age.
1: Oh, the eyes was confusing too, because I forgot about the eyes. That's even that I don't even know what the eyes mean because yeah. when the first time you see the eyes, as you're looking, they're below the clock. So the right eye looks like it has um, conjunctivitis or something. <laughs> the left eye looks normal, and then in the later shot. It's not. You have to really look for it. But in a later shot, right after that, we see the sign from the opposite side, mm-hmm. and on the opposite side, it has two normal eyes. Yeah. Like, what the fuck does that mean?
0: Yeah, and I think there's a lighthouse in the, the the other eye when we see it from the angle, where it looks like it's got something in it.
1: Oh, I didn't even, I didn't even notice that. And then now that I think about it, I'm just thinking about it, and so you got the two eyes, and then the clock is up in the middle. It's almost like in that "quote-unquote" third eye position, and so that almost makes me think if, if whenever he has these moments when he's reflecting on his life, it's, is, you know, almost take that now as like that's his like third eye moment, Um, Hmm. when, when he's like you know getting introspective, and, and and witnessing things that aren't physically in the real world. But a clock with no hands seems to indicate something like. Like time, like being stuck in time or frozen in time. Um, like I don't know where time won't progress, or it almost seems like also. I mean, just in this movie is like time being unimportant.
0: Yes, that's right. Like,
1: (laughs) and maybe because maybe because I watched Interstellar for the umpteenth time recently. Again, I mean, like again, again, again. So. And, you know, obviously, Interstellar, the the fifth fifth dimension is such a thing, such a big deal. I mean, being being able to somehow be a being who could stand outside of time. Mm-hmm. And, and so when a person, like the character in the movie, when you're just like, when you kind of like check out of real life for a moment, meaning like daydreaming or something. Um, and then you start going into your past and distant past and recent past like I can, you can almost imagine that being like the Tesseract in interstellar where Cooper can go anywhere in the library and see Murph's room at any point. See, to me, that's almost like a a physical representation of a person just going through their catalog of memories. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like, I think that's what's going on with the clock concept every time he has one of these moments um, in, in the movie. And another part of the inspiration that Bergman talks about, although later he said that he was lying when he said this initially, so. But <laughs> the first time Bergman explained this in an interview, he said that, um, like, the impetus for this story was he was going on a drive himself in, in Sweden to go visit his mother, and along the way he stopped at this apartment where they used to, where the family used to go for for summers, and. And so he, he went to the apartment, which they no longer owned or anything. And in his mind, he was imagining, what if I opened the door to this apartment? And what if it looked exactly like it did when I was a kid? Mm. And so that was like the impetus for this movie, supposedly. Because then later, in later years, he said he just made that, or he lied. <laughs> but but he may have been lying when he said he was lying. So, he, you know, That's you true. don't know. <laughs> but um so, that, I don't know because I, I was going to say, we've all felt that way before, but I don't know that. if we've, I know I've felt that way before. I don't know if other people feel that way, too. I always think about that when I think about, like, the schools I used to go to. I mean, like, my schools I went to growing up. And I do have those thoughts of, like, what if I walked into the school and it looked the same as it did um, when I went there and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, when I bring this up. Um, <laughs> um, because it seemed initially, especially because I have already seen other Bergman movies, I was thinking, oh, this is a guy who's like contemplating his death, but no, it's not really, no, it's not specifically about that, but it is just like, certainly Oh, what's the word? Really reevaluating things.
0: Yeah. Contemplating who he's been and what his life's been. And getting this it's all wrapped up around him getting this award. Yes. It's Fifty years spent in this this position working towards something. And by the time he finally gets there you can tell it's like the award doesn't really matter anymore. It's it's more about what he's kind of learned about himself that's the important part.
1: Yeah. And not to jump around again, but here it goes. So during like his last big dream sequence, um it's like he's he's being evaluated, yeah. um, right? And it like it seems like, or well, I took it as initially that, like he was getting his doctor's license renewed, but I don't know if that's really what's going on. It just kind of how it seemed to me. I don't know. I I think that's me putting my own thoughts into it because it reminded me of like a, a senior or older person going in to renew their driver's license. Is what it reminded right. me of. Um, but anyway, he's being reevaluated, and he's. Put in front of a board, um, and and it, he basically fails because he, he can't see what's in the microscope and he also doesn't understand the words that are up yeah. on the board. Now, to be fair, those words because obviously I, I'm pretty sure you and I don't speak or read Swedish, no, but those words on the board are actually gibberish, so it actually wouldn't make sense to anybody, um, Swedish or not, they are gibberish words but i guess we're seeing what what dr borg is seeing because he can't decipher the words himself either and then the person who's doing the examination who happens to be one of the people they picked up earlier but anyway he says like you know you failed you're guilty of of not understanding like the um uh what do they call it like the doctor's code the medical i I forget i can't remember the term for that so what do you what what do you make of that? What, is, what are they saying that he has failed at that point? I mean, Dr. Borg. Or, like, what is the dream sequence saying about him as a person? Like, what area has he failed in, in your interpretation?
0: Well, I think it comes back to the, the first line of the, the movie, where he talks about how he, as he went through life, he realized that relationships always revolved around discussing and evaluating the character and behavior of others and and people in general and so he chose to avoid other people because of that and they even say when after they're like okay you're guilty and your punishment is loneliness i think he's failed to care for the people around him and care for himself really i think that's what they're talking about there in that scene i think i, I don't know <laughs> i was a little confused for that yeah, yeah yeah no i i
1: think i think that's what i think that's what it is because i think because what we get, because it's so, it's wild. So, you know, we meet his mother. Oh, no, let's no, let's step back even before that. So he's riding with his daughter-in-law, Marianne. Mm-hmm. And so Marianne was married to his son. And his son evolved. We don't actually see him until way later in the movie. Yeah. Um, but, we, we, but we hear about him a lot. So, okay, so Marianne, the daughter-in-law, she doesn't particularly have anything against Dr. Borg, uh, Isaac, but she just doesn't like him because he seems to be just like his son, who she's married to. Yes. Um, And what that means is that these guys, they're really methodical. They're really um, analytical type. Like, they're not people people
0: and they do a good job demonstrating this between the generations with all going all the way back to the mum yes where they're they're always kind of complaining and just unpleasant and they don't really have a way to connect with people on an emotional level and i like how they mention that the the grandma she's complaining I'm like oh i've got 15 grandchildren none of them see me except for Evald or however you say his name and the only son that she has left is Sam and it's just like those three are just the only ones their their group that are kind of the same and connect, can connect to each other. Yes, in the barest way that they can connect to other people, <laughs> but they can kind of all relate because they're still the same.
1: Yes, and like I and like I said, this happened. We re, this is revealed later in the movie, but we eventually discover that part of the reason why Marianne seems to be like leaving uh, her husband because that's why she wants to leave and and go with um, Doctor Borg to Lund, to get away from her husband. Um, And we know they've been fighting, but we don't really know exactly what they've been fighting about until it's revealed later. And it turns out that she's pregnant and they get in a fight because because Evold has no interest at all of having any progeny. Um, Like, he, he has, like, this take on, like, the world being terrible and there's no reason to, like, add another like offspring and and put him into this world like to continue the cycle so he has no interest and he basically gives her an ultimatum which is you either have me or you have the baby but you can't have both and so this is what sets her off um and so um i mean that's heavy
0: (laughs) yeah but even even heavier is what he says during that scene about what he wants with his life which is just be dead. Stone dead is what he says. <laughs> oh, man, I mean, she, she wants to keep living and, and kind of create life. And he just wants death. <laughs> so very heavy. It is crazy.
1: <laughs> and it's funny because like, you know, again, these kind of movies don't have, I mean, these Bergman movies, they don't have like broad appeal for like, for like general audiences. I mean, especially, I mean, the language barrier on its own is already like,
0: you know, yeah. Yeah.
1: you know, a tough sell. Uh, and there's no like dubbed versions of these movies that I'm aware of, um, only subtitled, and and like I said, general audiences or young people in particular, this is these are not things that they would seek out in any way. It's not like seeking out George Romero's like Night of the Living Dead, which is like a you know cult classic or something like that. That's one thing to seek that out as a young person, but to seek this out is a really high bar to entry. But if young people would seek this kind of stuff out, I think they would like. Like, you know how the way like young people could connect to like, let's say, Vincent Price type stuff. You know? Mm-hmm. And a segment of young people could be like, oh, I like Vincent Price because he's like the original Tim Burton and he's so dark and like, you know, the the, the, the things that he was involved with, da da da. But I mean, if somehow you could get people who think of themselves young people who think of themselves as like the emo types of groups or goth types of groups, I wish they could kind of see things like this that seem placid on their surface, but when but when you really, like, dig into it, you'd be like, holy shit, like, this shit's really dark. Like, if if somehow you could expose these younger types to stuff like this and explain it to them, like, I could see young Evolved as being, like, I could see 20-year-olds getting his tattoo, like, a, a tattoo of his, like, Name or his portrait on their arm Damn. for people to go, Who the fuck is that? And they'd be like, Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you about this evil guy, this fucking guy who fucking hates living. You know, like, I don't know. I feel like it, young people who have those kinds of weird, um, pessimistic thoughts could really relate to like stuff like this if somehow they could get exposed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, these like crazy, weird anti hero types. But um okay, so because of everything we just said, like later in the movie when um when when Isaac and Marianne get to where they're supposed to um like where the family is like reconvening, you know, in preparation for tomorrow's ceremony, like it's kind of like a surprise or it, it kind of like ugh, like the first time you see Evolved in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And because of the things that they've already discussed and set up about him. Like you're kind of, or I was kind of afraid of him. Like, oh shit! Like this is the guy. Like, oh my god, he's gonna be who's this terrible asshole? And this is gonna, like, this is gonna be kind of prickly, right? But then it doesn't really go that way. Yeah. Like you kind of expect, like, oh shit! But then yet, Evolved seems like, like he's like had his own like inner journey or something.
0: (laughs) No, I think it's. I think it's the same as the professor, because we we do a good job when we return to the town of the mother. We see these two people who work at a gas station, one of them played by Max von Sydow. And they kind of present him as like a hero in the town. Everyone loves him. Everyone celebrates him as this this great doctor who helped all these people. And even uh, the way he presents himself in his own mind, they do a good job pretending to be these great people that they aren't. And I think Evolved, maybe when there's other people around, just can switch into that mode of tricking people and not seeing who he really is.
1: Also, oh, you're saying he's being insincere when he's being cordial?
0: I don't even think it's insincere. I think it's, that's the mode that they present when they're around other people. Like, for example, uh, Marianne, she asks, when they first start the drive, she's like, What did you say to me when I first arrived at your house telling you I was going to stay with you for a week? he was like well i I said i was delighted to see you and i was happy to have you and then she was like nope that's not what you said and she paints this much more ugly exchange of him being like kind of presenting her as like a whiny bitch and being like i'm not going to get involved with your marriage if you want to stay here fine but even to himself he'd fooled himself into thinking that he was a much more kind type of person and when she said it he wasn't shocked or anything he just kind of laughed it off like really that's what i said but it hadn't quite sunk in yet to who he who he really was. It doesn't come till later in the the journey for him.
1: Oh man, I forgot about that. I, for, I forgot, even though I just watched it, I forgot about that.
0: Yeah, so I think Evald probably is the same type of person. He probably doesn't even really understand the impact that he has on her.
1: So wait a second. So going along with that line of thinking, are you saying then that even though Evald had like such harsh words when we see the flashback with Marianne? that even though he said such harsh things in his mind or his heart's mind, he wasn't really that harsh. Yeah. So in other words, even though he verbally stated an ultimatum, that's not actually the way he remembers it or thinks of it after the fact.
0: Well, when he first sees her, he's just like, oh, it's surprised to see you here. Are you coming to the party with me? Like It's almost like he's just skipping right past it. And she plays along with the niceties too. And it's almost like, at least she's willingly going along with just accepting, like, oh, things are seem to be back to normal, so I guess I'll just go with it. And then when uh, Evald is talking to his dad on his own, and they mention the thing about the kid, he's kind of like, it's whatever, it's fine, I accepted it, she can have her kid if she wants, like, let's just move past it, I don't want to think about it anymore. So yeah, I think these, I think these folks, at the same time that they're bastards, they're also people pleasers, it seems to be. So maybe... Maybe he just, even though he made that ultimatum in the moment, maybe he's just accepted it now. It's a little hard to say because we don't really see the private scenes between Evald and, and Marianne at the end. But That's, just...
1: that's very interesting. Man, I, I think you're like right about just about everything you said, and that stuff just completely flew over my head.
0: Yeah, and this comes... <laughs> unfortunately, this comes from personal experience, knowing people like these two. So.
1: <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, but... And I know people like this too, but I wasn't really informing my own opinions based on my own true life experience when it came to this particular aspect. And you reminded me of something else interesting that I believe, I don't know that the, maybe the commentary informed me on about Bergman. Um, because there was something about, I don't remember it exactly, but there was something about, um, so, you know, you see the flashback, obviously uh, of the summer house, but how it was back in the day. And it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Cause if you do, if you do the math on the character's age then those scenes were happening like turn of the century.
0: <laughs> wow, yeah. Which, which
1: is wild to think about. <laughs> but anyway, um, and even though, you know, Bergman is not as old as that character, obviously, but still, the whole thing of flashing back to the summer, uh, the family summer, Bergman did, as I said, he experienced that not in the turn of century way, but still in context for his age, he experienced that whole... The family's going out to the summer location, and la da da da. And according to the commentary, I think it was just like we see in the in Borg's flashbacks. Bergman had these ideas about that, like what you see with the turn of the century version of it, like the family. It, it has to do with this keeping up with appearances thing you're you sort of talking about, or the appearances that you, so. It looks idyllic, right? Like, everything looks idyllic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the way everyone dresses, the formality of the old world or the old ways, and the formality of having a family dinner and how it looks like, look, like, everyone's at the table. It's like a communal experience. And according to the commentary, so Bergman had this idea of he liked the idyllic vision or memory of the way things used to be even though it was a facade yeah so even though there was like a family dinner and it was very formal there was still like all this like bitterness like under the surface and deceit and backstabbery and and even though the reality was they weren't this perfect harmonious family Mm -hmm. he still found comfort in the pretending or, like, the show of a happy family. So I think that was a conscious thought that in Bergman's mind. And I think that speaks to what you were just talking about with the um, evolved character and the presenting one thing. And even if you know things are terrible, I guess from Bergman's point of view, there was still something, though, nice about the dressing up and pretending.
0: Yeah, and I think maybe that feeds into the generational impact. Because we even see the mum's mum. Like, she spends that whole nice dinner, everyone's having a nice time. But she is such a persnickety bitch. She's just got to <laughs> comment and cut everyone down around her. That kind of stuff, that, that that eats into you and that impacts your life. Clearly, that's what his mum became. In some ways, that's what Isak became. And then evolved. is in that same mold. So... <laughs> And i always appreciate generational stories i think that's <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh i love generational stories
0: <laughs> oh man yeah and um i also think uh it's interesting how that uh the first sarah presents um because she's got a little bit of a, ro- a romance with both brothers and she talks about how is it isak i always. I tried to write down how to say his name, but I thought...
1: Yeah, Isak is Isak. I can't... What was the other brother's name?
0: Uh, Siegfried, I think.
1: Okay, Siegfried. And
0: she, she was talking about how, oh, he, Isak, he's so sweet, he's so thoughtful, you're just kind of this, this brash kind of asshole. He almost forced himself on her, really. Yes. And I kind of wondered if maybe the reason that he fixates on this memory and why he keeps returning to it is maybe this is when the change happened and maybe this kind of made him look at relationships with people differently that betrayal
1: oh not to get cathartic for a second and i won't for very long Hmm. but like the more we talk about this movie the more i can connect the dots between like my own life and my own timeline yeah to a lot of the things that we're talking about in this movie because because now that we're talking about that part in particular the love triangle and 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 why this is such a watershed moment for Isak? Man, I have similar memories locked in my head that are like almost set up just like how this is in the movie. Um, I mean, talk to, I'm talking about the love triangle in particular with Siegfried, mm. um, uh, and and Sarah one and Isak. Like, man, I could I could think of stuff just like that, like in my own life, and and how like the way it's presented in the movie. Like, Isak is the sweet one. And, of course, I'm the hero of my own story, but my own personal <laughs> story. But Isak is, like, the sweet one, the deserving one. And, like, Siegfried is, like, at the time, he's, like, the coward and the, the douchebag and the, you know, just taking advantage of the situation. Yet he's the one who, like, has, what, seven kids with her? Mm-hmm. And they go off and do their thing. And, you know, <sighs> And then, like how you said, it affects Isak It was like a turning point. Man, I got my own. I got my own situation. You know that just mirrors that so perfectly. It's terrible. And it also this just this stuff just reminds me of the beginning of of Barry Lyndon as well.
0: Hmm. Um, yeah, and I also like the way that they layer the generational impact of they all are cursed with the same affliction, like that poor mom, uh, Isak's mom. Like Nobody visits her anymore. She's just alone in that big mansion that she's in. Uh, Isak, even though he has that kind of fun dynamic with the, the housekeeper, he's fundamentally alone. And then we see in the younger point in his life, Evolved kind of at this pivotal point where he could drive away his family and wind up the same way. So I love the way they layer those three on top of each other and kind of see the impact. And when we get to the end of this where uh, Isak goes, we see maybe a way out of it. So I thought all that was really well done.
1: Yeah, and, and man... Just if you want to focus on nutty characters, when you're really, the the professor's housemate, she's something else. <laughs> um, because, and she's all. I also hate people. Well, people like her in real life annoy me so much. The ones who are like, "Oh, well, if you're going to drive yourself, then I'm staying home." Yeah. And then you know, and then you go, "Oh shit, what are you doing here? Well, you think I'd miss this? <laughs> like, oh man, I hate people like that in real life. They make me so crazy." But not only that about her, so she's like, I don't know what she is. I don't know what the word is to describe her. I'm sure there is a word. I don't know what it is to describe someone like her because, you know, she's all about this. She's like, he's like, you know, you've been my, you've been in service like for me like, like forty years or whatever. Like, can't we just be on a first name basis? Like, it's just the two of us. And, and part mm-hmm. of her is like, no, like I'm a professional. You know, I don't, I wouldn't do that. That would be improper. Like, how dare you? Flash forward to where she's just now, if you need me, you know, I'm just down the hall. I'm just going to leave the door Mm ajar. And you know she's winking. And that stuff is so confusing to me. Maybe it's because when it comes to serious things in life, I'm all about saying things how they really are. Like, I'm very upfront Mm -hmm. in real life when it comes to, like, interpersonal matters. And so when someone tells me, like, no, this is the line where I draw it and you stay on your side and I stay on my side, I take people at their word when they say stuff like that in real life. So then when they're like, I'm right down the hall, wink, wink, that stuff confuses me when it happens in real life. Um, when people are, I don't know if that's duplicitous or I don't know what the word it is to describe that, when you have, like, ulterior motives.
0: Um yeah and they they set up that they have that weird dynamic right from their first argument where they can go from this really heated exchange to like a nice moment together and then jump right to back to arguing and then nice again and then once they separate they're both kind of bitter (laughs) like but even (laughs) though they separate on a nice tone i I like that right from the start but yeah it is uh in real life that's a toxic dynamic but it plays as kind of sweet with these two elderly folks for whatever reason
1: (laughs) yeah i can't even imagine if I just had a companion like that for 40 years, oh uh, the same person no, but I mean like I would have to imagine I'd get drunk and bored at one point and then and then that line would have been crossed 20 years ago 30 years ago
0: <laughs> but that does set up the because uh, right right after that is when Marianne comes in she's like, oh how could I sleep through that route that you just had? He's like, well, we didn't have a row. We were just having a conversation. <laughs> like, I think he genuinely thinks that. I think that's he doesn't quite, uh, quite understand human reaction interactions.
1: Yes. Oh, and then also just reflecting on that early scene. Oh my God! If I had a housekeeper or someone who I employ, and I'm just like, hey, can I have, you know, a kind uh, of some breakfast, and and if my person of employment or person I employ. If they were just like, no, because I don't like what you're doing, you're getting no breakfast. Hey. I'm mean, like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> what? What? What?
0: Yeah, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe if he'd asked that 30 years ago, it would have went different. But, you know, they're too old right. now. They've lived together too long.
1: And eventually she's like, I'll get you two eggs if you want them. He's like, yes, please. And then he's like, toast. And she's like, nope, no toast for you.
0: Yeah, there's that hot and cold. <laughs> hot and cold <laughs> dynamic.
1: <laughs> it's like, holy shit. Oh my god, I'd go completely insane. Again, because I'm always very straightforward in real life. Mm-hmm. People who like play these weird games, I never understand it. I never understand the point of playing the game. And I guess yes. they, they get something out of it like in their own world. Like To me, it's just rearranging chess pieces on a board for no reason. Mm-hmm. But I guess to them, that is something. Rearranging the pieces on the board. Yes, But to me, it just looks like nonsense.
0: And I think they do a good job with that dynamic mirroring it to the uh, the couple that they pick up on the drive. Oh, my God. Which supposedly is very similar to uh, uh, Isak's own marriage, which is this constant sniping and power playing and trying to get the upper hand to make the other person explode. Oh, my God. And that is just incredibly toxic.
1: <laughs> uh, to me, it's incredibly tiring. Yes. Um, having some experience in the Uber world, oh, my God, I have been on some rides... With some people like that couple.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh my God. I just, like, I'm, I'm just like holding it together. Like, how many more minutes and they'll be gone? How many more minutes? Oh, it causes time to stand still, though, you know, in that painful way. Yeah. Oh, to be like around that. Oh, I hate it so much. I hate it so much.
0: And yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredibly disruptive here. I mean, that's, they're the reason that, that that accident happens. And then when these people do them the favor of, helping them try to fix their car when that doesn't work give them a ride into town it's so caustic that they eventually just have to leave them out in the middle of nowhere like sorry but we just we can't deal with this anymore
1: oh fuck those people however i still haven't figured out why they're the two who like reappear during like the near the end dream sequence um
0: oh, i i think it's because uh in a way, this is a representation of his parents and a representation of himself and his wife in their marriage. And so they're the ones that put him on trial.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Wow, you're a genius. Look at you. Uh, <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, stepping away from the heady stuff for a moment, that car accident part kind of confused me at first um, because because what confused me was Professor Borg is driving at that point And he's driving on the left side of the road. And then that's where the oncoming Volkswagen Beetle is. And so at first I thought, oh, Borg is out of his mind. Like, why is he driving on the left side of the road? Mm -hmm. Like, he should be on the right side of the road. And so I thought maybe he caused the accident. But it's like, no, no, he, he wasn't wrong. And I was confused by this whole left side of the road business. Um Fun fact, um, apparently in Sweden, the left side of the road was the proper side until they changed it by law in 1967 oh. to where they jumped over to the right side. <laughs> so well, this was correct circa 1956 or 57, 57. Oh, that's interesting. So that confused me. That confused me so much. So <laughs> the left side was the proper side at this time. And speaking of the road trip again, of course we meet young Sarah, who is put, portrayed by the same actress who plays Sarah one, and they have the same name Sarah, mm-hmm. um, but she has these two male companions mm. um, with her, and then they're both like really different kinds of blokes. Um, even though they all appear to be friends to some degree, these two guys—they're both kind of enamored by Sarah because she's young and hot, but um, but these guys. Um, one is training or going to school to be a minister, and the other one is a doctor as well. Was that his
0: profession? Um, I think so. I can't remember what what the two were. I know that one was kind of a man of science, so there was kind of a oh, absolutely a spiritual man. Yeah, well, but I wasn't remember the professions.
1: Well, the one guy was definitely a minister, a hundred percent. I mean, the one who yeah. was more spiritual, obviously. I Think the other guy was a doctor
0: um it it makes sense for the comparisons to t Sack. so yeah it probably was a doctor
1: but at one point during the arguments uh in the car somebody says something like oh that's the, like the catholic whatever now this is a thing that would that, that pops up in especially the older bergman movies like something about catholics or something mm-hmm. like that it was a reoccurring theme any thoughts about that kind of stuff And for reference, I mean, it helps to know that um, Bergman himself, because for a guy who includes questions of God frequently throughout his movies, so he, he was raised in a Lutheran family. I believe Bergman's father was a minister or something of that sort. And Bergman from age zero to 17 was completely raised in that religious world. And then he abandoned like his faith and beliefs, I suppose, at age 17. And he never went back to practicing religion. But if you watch his movies, he definitely had many thoughts on religion like for his entire life. And to this and if you watch many of his movies, there's almost a sense of he would love whether it's him or his characters would love to be religious, but just can't. I mean, Hmm. kind of distilling it, um, maybe oversimplifying it, but for that to be a reoccurring theme. But then just to see these types of little arguments happen, like in the car. Any thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, when it came to the Catholic thing, I I was confused because even the uh, you were talking about how it was the two guys with um, Sarah that were one of them was Catholic, right? You said
1: yes, or or someone like someone said something, and then someone else in the car was like i need to go back and see it someone else in the car was like oh that like something like oh that was such a catholic thing to say or that's like, oh yeah of course that's
0: oh, okay yeah i think you're talking about the the couple because yeah they they mentioned that in their first exchange had yeah, the the guy was was talking about oh my wife she's an actress and and they were talking it was, he made some comment about how he was being punished as a catholic with being married to this woman ah and then it came up again in the car there you go but no, I was confused. I didn't quite get what they were going with What the Catholic angle was. up it was like, is it Catholic guilt? Is he guilty because he's a bastard to his wife? I don't know. I was confused. Or he was being punished as a Catholic by being married to a woman like her. I, I didn't quite get what that was going for.
1: Yeah, I need to go back and watch it, but it just jumps out at me because in my own regular life, I've certainly experienced both numerous times. Meaning, if I somehow find myself in a more um, Christian, non-denom- dom- non-denominational setting, if someone brings up Catholic, it'll trigger like everybody in the room. Uh, if if everyone's yeah. predominantly non- non-denominational, mm. and I've certainly seen the opposite as well, where I'm in a setting that's um, predominantly Catholic, and then someone brings up proselyte. Pro, how do you say that word proselytizing
0: yeah proselytizing like going out and
1: pros- not proselytizing but i mean something that relates to Protest-
0: protestantism by the way uh maybe maybe this line will mean something to you i just found one or uh that guy was berating marianne and he was like see my wife she has her hysteria i have catholicism it's <laughs> only ego that we haven't killed each other And i i, I don't know maybe that's just a an argument that I don't understand, but maybe you can bring some to it.
1: (laughs) So just taking that, just taking that statement on its face, it's because he's saying she's got hysteria. I've got Catholicism. The way I take that just in a vacuum and looking at those words, I take that to mean, to meaning hysteria is, is, is chaos in general. Mm -hmm. And Catholicism means living by the rules. And having order, hmm. and being sensible—that's the way I take that statement in a vacuum. That's what's being implied.
0: See, this this clearly shows my own bias, where I was like, "It's saying that we both have our form of um, illogical uh, foundation or grounding."
1: Oh, oh, okay. Now they that that could be like the um, Bergman perspective on the whole thing, you know, of looking at it as both being like two silly extremes, um, like. But from the character who's making the statement's point of view, yeah. is what I was saying. That the the character who makes the statement is saying, I'm orderly because I follow the rules. That's what I mean by Catholic. And you don't follow any rules, so you're the hysterical one. Mm. That's that's the way I take it from the from the mouth of whoever said it.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious if it's right after he says that if, if she starts yeah, she just starts slapping the hell out of him. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was quite a moment.
1: <laughs> but it's just something to look out. You, gotta, you watch, we watch, we watch more of these movies. You, it's it's gonna come up because definitely just saying Catholic is. And I, I want to. I need to go do some more Swedish research because I know they had their own. Oh, we talked about it. Oh, we talked about it in Virgin Spring. Um At well, that was obviously a different time period, but there was this whole thing about Christ um, and and the old. Mm. Swedish beliefs, yeah. the old Norse beliefs. Um, and so I, just like other Western countries, the Swedish had their own like religious reformations over the over the over the different generations and, and whatnot.
0: Well, but I am curious about those two uh those two boys fighting for Sarah's affections. Uh, at at times in the movie I felt like they were meant to be I felt like all the characters in the car were meant to be pieces of um uh, Isak. But at the same time I do wonder if the two boys are meant to represent the two brothers. I wasn't sure if they were two pieces of our lead or you know, the a direct parallel.
1: I could see it I could see it as both. I could see it as both. I could see them as representing warring parts within Isak's own personality, his own makeup. But I can also see them as representing the two brothers, Siegfried and Isak as well. Because yeah. obviously they are both fawning over like Sarah's affections, and, and the one who's the more minister type is the one who she seems more into, but there's still the other guy, the more sciencey guy, who comes across as the more obnoxious between the two. Um, but yeah. I would <laughs> think of him as more the Siegfried in the situation, and the minister type one being the Isaac type,
0: yeah. And that's kind of why I thought of it as two sides of Isaac because. He does have these two elements. He is that bastard who when uh, Marianne first showed up just kind of berated her and didn't want to take part in helping her. But then at the same time he is this happy grandfatherly figure that is enjoying the time with her. And so he's the free spirited and the kind of the bastard. So that, that that's why I maybe thought it was supposed to be uh, two pieces of him. But Oh my god. But I don't know. I, I don't remember there being any sort of religious references with him. Or at least when they asked him, he was kind of like, oh, I'm too old for that kind of thing. Just kind of brushed it off, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe his younger self had some type of more idealistic sense of things. Um, I can't stand how those two young guys are wearing, like, suit coats above the waist and wearing shorts below the waist. (laughs) Ugh! It's a horrible look. Ugh. (laughs) I, I hate it. Whenever they show their legs, because usually oh. you see them from the waist up and it, they just look normal. But then when you see their legs and they're just wearing shorts, ugh, I, I don't like shorts. Um, especially short, uh, medium to short shorts with a, with a suit <laughs> coat. That is, that is not pleasant.
0: Yeah, that's fair.
1: Not aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> and
0: those guys are annoying assholes. I mean, they have their, their sweet moments. Like I really like at the end when they all serenade a, him is they're they're leaving to take another ride.
1: Yeah, that's wild.
0: Yeah, that that actually uh I felt I found a very moving scene at my eyes a little uh feeling a little uh, little watery but
1: <laughs> It is this this is another weird thing that happens with many um Bergman uh movies. Like I can almost imagine these movies. Like it's funny how like Shakespeare is known for taking Classical tales that already existed before him, and then putting them into his contemporary world's understanding hmm. uh, of the of the late 1500s, and then of course Shakespeare's works have been adapted like to modern um, situations now. Um, anyway, so that's taking the past and like you know updating it for the, the present or the future. I could see doing the reverse to a lot of Bergman movies, meaning like this movie in particular. I could totally see retroactively converting it and making it some type of old Roman or Greek myth. Like, I could see Borg being some, like, elder Perseus or whatever character. And I could see, like, these different people he encounters as being, like, different types of um, Greek or Roman, like, mythical creatures or beasts. And I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying?
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, I could see it. Yeah.
1: Because. Like that trio, I see them as like harpies or something or some type of little Lokis or fawns and and Uh. they they seem annoying at first and then I can see them in this mythical tale at the end like, see you later, Perseus, you know, good luck. We're going to Crete now. Um, Like these weird mythical creatures like coming into his life, making some type of impact or change and then going off on their way.
0: Yeah, and in that way, the movie does have that element where it doesn't necessarily feel like it's a movie that exists in the <laughs> real world it feels like oh okay
1: It's <laughs> like what
0: it feels like um like there's a little bit more of an abstractness to it because the way he picks up these strangers and of course one of them's named sarah and played by the same actress who played the old sarah it, it feels like it's um
1: yeah it's almost like it's almost like the wizard of oz where yeah. the farmhands become like the companions in the story
0: yeah, and there's a lovely kind of irony that we open up the movie with him talking about how he's chosen to withdraw from all so-called relations. And then just on a whim, he takes this car trip, and next thing you know, it's filled with all these people, and he's forced to interact, and he's kind of discovering life again through having to interact with these people.
1: Yes, a million percent. And by the way, I've had this experience many times, especially in my more recent life, where I initially meet someone, and I, my initial take is there is no way this person is going to contribute to my life. And I mean, even on a conversational level, I'm like, this, and then, you know, smash cut to like, wow, I'm really glad I just had this conversation with this person. Or this person inadvertently opened my eyes to something, not because they meant to, mm-hmm. but it just happened because of the meeting.
0: Yeah. And that's, that. Uh, yeah, that's definitely a cool aspect of this movie. And it's kind of telling you to, to try to branch out to, to do something you wouldn't normally do and it might might benefit you which is always a good message i think
1: a million percent some other background we do research on this particular movie um this actor the one who plays isak what's his name victor uh, i don't know how you pronounce jay's in swedish me neither victor <laughs> josh i'm gonna Zostrum, i'm gonna guess something like that um So, he did appear in an earlier um, Bergman movie, I believe, but not as, like, the main feature or protagonist. But this actor in particular, he was, like, a very famous Swedish actor in the 20s and the 30s. So, he was, like, like, the Clark Gable for Sweden in the 20s and 30s, like, film legend. And... This actor was Igmar Bergman's like idol. Um,
0: Oh, interesting.
1: (laughs) Like a million percent. And so, and it was, this was also the last acting role that he ever did um, because he passed in 1960. Um, And he was already retired pretty much at this point. Uh, Bergman had to convince him this was going to be pretty, like a pretty easy job to do, like nothing too straining. uh but Bergman wrote the entire movie and the entire role around Victor specifically being in it. So it was one of those situations where Bergman's like, We're either gonna get him or we're gonna do this movie. But if we don't get him, then, then we're not doing this movie. Like <laughs> wow. it's not gonna be done with anybody else. Like it's specifically written for um for Victor. And supposedly, because Bergman said because when he finally convinced him like to be in this movie. Because Bergman, I mean, supposedly Victor read the script and was like, "I don't know, this is like a whole lot to do. Like, I don't know if I'm like physically up to doing this movie." Mm. Um, but eventually, Bergman convinced him, and he said, "You know, so let's get let's get the let's get the figures worked out, like the business side." Mm-hmm. And supposedly, Victor said, "I don't I don't care about the figures. Like, you don't have to pay me anything. My only condition is." I have to have my whiskey at five o'clock on the dot. So I love it. In other words, I have to be home by five to have my whiskey. That's my one condition.
0: <laughs> hey, rock and roll grandpa. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And he's great. He, he's fantastic in it. So many of the, the more emotional moments it's, you just, his face just carries so much impact And in the lighter moments. Like when he's sitting around and, his voiceover is commenting how he's telling the story to all these these young folks about his history in the medical field, and they're enjoying it, it not just laughing to be polite, but actually enjoying it. He just has such a, a different air to him in that scene. I, I really appreciate that moment, too. I just think he's great. It's
1: funny. I think it's, I'm think i starting to think of movies that involve these types of older curmudgeony type... Now I'm thinking about Up. Pixar is Up.
0: Another one of those, <laughs> those movies, uh, yeah, I just really... Yeah, there's just something about those people later in their life dealing with a lot of different really heavy emotions. I can just really dig into that stuff.
1: Oh jeez, just wait till you get older and,
0: and I'm not looking and... forward to it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean when you'll start to relate to that stuff even more, Because like, 'cause you'll start to feel it and start to have an inkling of what's going on in their minds, like for real.
0: Yeah, you know, and there is there is one scene that's that's currently playing right now, which I I didn't know what to think about it when I watched it the first time and and that's the scene where uh, it's after the trial, when he's shown the the image of his wife in kind of a weird ass- assault scene. I I wasn't really sure what was going on there. Uh, did did you have much thoughts on that? And then she gives this whole speech. Wait, whose wife? Uh, Isak's, uh, or Isak's, I think. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Oh, the one with his wife. Oh, 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 oh.
0: Yeah, because it. I mean, it doesn't seem fully consensual. But at the same time, it's like she's accepting that this is just what's going to happen to her. And then afterwards, she gives this this odd speech about Isak where she's kind of saying, like, I'll go home, I'll tell him what's happened to me, and he'll just brush it off because he's so cold inside. And he'll be nice about it. Like, he'll accept that this is just what ha- what's happened. He'll be sympathetic. But he won't care at all because he's just, like, dead inside.
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: It was just a weird scene. I, I really didn't know what to... To think about the whole thing.
1: <laughs> I think it's... I mean, you're right. When I watched it myself, it seemed out of context. But now that you pose the question and I think about it more right here, right now, I think what it's doing is it's doubling down on on how passive he can be because the fact that his wife could, like, cheat on him Wow. And that he just doesn't even, like, respond. Because, not, not, to go, not to go down the whole psychological rabbit hole, but there are some who say that, like, when it comes to, like, a partner stepping out, especially the woman or the wife, part of it is to, like, get a reaction from their other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then... And then to do that and then still not get a reaction, I guess that just doubles down on on how like I mean this just happens a lot of, again, not to get into not to get cathartic or into my own personal experience. Once again, I feel like I've played that Esac role before in that situation in real life where where my significant other was like, Could you please react to this thing? <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I, I've taken the Esac approach, um, certainly, because it's just like, yeah, no. And I don't know, to to defend myself for a second <laughs> or defend someone from that position, part of it is is self-preservation, self-defense. Yeah. Like, okay, this is terrible, but I don't feel like I'm going to make it better <laughs> if I have, like, a nervous breakdown. Um, And then also, not to be cathartic, but – It is. It it also kind of shows the results, the impact that it had with his initial experience with Sarah and Siegfried. Mm. And that might have been a setup for him being this type of person now, later in life, with his ex-wife. And I'm only saying this because I'm just drawing off my own personal past and connecting the dots. Not because I think I'm an expert, but
0: yeah yeah and what you're saying all all tracks the only part that doesn't quite connect for me is the, the element of it like him being not really consensual like it seems like the guy is in his way forcing himself on her mm-hmm. and like she's laughing through the whole scene but it looks like the laughing could turn into to scream or crying at any second and then in that moment she's like putting herself back together and she's like saying like oh i'll you know I'll tell him what's happened. I think
1: that makes. I think that just makes it worse. I mean, not just what happens to her, but worse that like it's one thing if she consensually cheated with someone and then Isak the didn't care. Even worse if a guy is kind of taking advantage of her against her will and he still doesn't have a reaction as well. Like that's like doubling yeah. down, I guess.
0: And she even comments that that she'll cry and he'll just give her a sedative to calm her down. <laughs> like wow, that's. That's really damning. <laughs> That's what he would do. Not comfort her. Not try to understand. Just let me just silence you so I can get back to whatever I'm doing. So not there.
1: Yeah, not to damn myself further, but this movie just, it like, once again portrays uh, young Isaac as a as a cuck, as they say nowadays. Ugh, that word sounds gross. <laughs> yeah, I never
0: liked that word. Never liked that word. <laughs> There's many words that fall into the common usage that I'm like, I wish that that didn't. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I know, but oh, we could just use the original word cuckold. Just like when people, like everyone says bougie now or young people do. Uh, yeah. And yeah, they know what it means when they say bougie, but they don't know that they're saying bourgeoisie, um, but whatever.
0: Well, I think that they do, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe no, they, they don't.
1: don't. <laughs> they just know bougie because they heard other young people say, and, and artists
0: I don't I don't know if that's true, but... Really?
1: You, you think they know that it comes from bourgeoisie, from French, from France? I think if
0: you ask them, I think that they would have to think about it, but I think they would know. Okay, you,
1: the, you, then the young people... And to be fair, I in may your, interact in your with... Your them. province are a lot more evolved than the ones over here that I encounter.
0: And I do have siblings that are around, that are Gen Z, that are that age, for like 17, 18, and
1: yeah. But again, I think they're smarter than... than than the 17-year-olds I'm meeting around here.
0: Could be. could
1: be, Or more well-informed. Because there's no fucking way the ones I'm meeting know what bourgeoisie means. (laughs) No way.
0: Yeah, by the way, I wanted to say, uh, just in terms of some fun directional flourishes, I don't feel like there's all that that much in this. It feels more like a straightforward kind of drama besides the little bit of surrealism in there. Um, I really like that scene. Oh, I can't remember the context of it. It was um, in the car, him and Marianne were having a conversation, and then the... Oh, it was actually a really, really pivotal scene, what happened there. Do you remember they they the, the group of young people interrupted to sing him like a celebration? Mm-hmm. But it was in the middle of a really pivotal scene.
1: I can't remember the context of the scene prior to the interruption.
0: Oh, oh I just remembered. <laughs> okay. It was right after he, he was telling Marianne, because he'd been trying to tell her about his dreams ever since they first got in the car but she was never interested right and he just tells her like oh you know my i think the dream is telling me that i want to be dead it's kind of a surprise to him and that's when she's so stunned and then tells him her own version of that with his son and then when he's kind of processing that that's when they come up and kind of celebrate him like oh you've done such a great job you must be so smart you must be so accomplished all these years and then the camera like kind of every all the light sucks out. It's just his image.
1: Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. That was a really cool effect. Really cool transition. And it it reminds me of something else that I was about to say when you were talking about how there's not too many visual flourishes, which is normal, especially for the early Bergman's.
0: Mm. But
1: it reminded me of something I got out of the the VAM the value added material. So Bergman is often criticized when it comes to like direction and and whatnot visuals in his movies, hmm. he's often criticized for being very theatrical because you know he throughout his entire career while he did make movies, he definitely did theater as well constantly, and of course his roots came from theater, right. writing for theater, directing theater, that type of thing, and and he would make he would do theater during the winter months and then do a movie during the summer months in Sweden. And so his approach to filmmaking, he's often criticized as being theatrical, meaning just basically doing theater on film. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and not taking advantage of the medium, the different media, the medium of film. But that's not. But it, it can definitely be taken as an unfair criticism as well, um, because absolutely, yeah, because it 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 does it is apparent on to a certain degree but then there are certainly other things that could never be done in theater that show up in his movies and it's funny you brought up that particular dissolve or whatever you want to call it because it is really cool yeah and in a sense it is something they would do in theater too right yeah Mm. we've all seen plays where like the lights go down and the spotlight is just on the individual so it's kind of ironic that it works really cool on film (laughs) but it's also like a totally a theater technique
0: no, that is funny. I didn't think about that connection, but that's perfect. Mm-hmm. And no, yeah, I don't think... I mean, the, this movie definitely has a very stagey feel to it, but I don't think that's negative. I think that kind of draws the focus more inward. When I think of stagey things, I think about more character pieces. Mm. So it's not so much about the the kind of flair of the filmmaking. It definitely is just the performance and that. Right,
1: but, but you could imagine, though, like... And of course, these were all considered art house films in their day, at least in America, or or west of the Atlantic. Um, So you could imagine, like, if you were used to 1950s Hitchcock movies and other popular Hollywood movies of the 50s Mm -hmm. and how they're produced, and it really was the golden age of film, uh, honestly. I mean, visually. I mean, stories and writing aside, like, those movies are just so amazingly well-crafted. In my opinion, the 50s Hollywood stuff... And then to watch something like this in 57, it must feel very, I mean, just visually, aesthetically, like, really boring, like, not dynamic, old-fashioned, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and that's, that's actually been a lot in the, the public discourse lately with The Whale. I've seen a ton of complaints about that, that same thing with that movie.
1: Hmm, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, a lot of people saying it's it's stagey, it's too flat, it's trapped in this one location. It doesn't feel like something that's fit for a movie, but but I disagree there as well. <laughs> I really like.
1: It. I'm so curious to see that just to know what my own opinion will be about that movie. Um, but yeah, you could just see how this would be like a really tough sell for mainstream audiences, even in the '50s, because it's it's yeah, it's almost shot like it's like almost shot like a movie from shit almost the late '30s. <laughs>
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, now that you say that, I can definitely see it. It would just, the camera quality would be lesser, but yeah, I could see it.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. It's obviously, like at least on Criterion, like immaculately sharp. Yeah. Um, But in effect, though, it's it's a real old-fashioned type of movie. And it is weird, though, because, well, obviously I've seen other Bergman stuff that came after this. You know, it is wild that something like his work in the 60s could exist alongside like the French New Wave, which is obviously like visually like the polar opposite Mm -hmm. of this kind of stuff. And it's wild that both could exist at the same time, like in the indie scene, because the French New Wave and stuff like that is just the polar opposite of this. And speaking of surrealism for a second. Yeah. According to the VAM, um, the whole idea of all the surrealist moments of this movie, Bergman was inspired by the German surrealist, film movement that came prior and so he was he was definitely directly influenced by that and modeling dream sequences after prior um german cinema
0: oh really they highlight uh, like german expressionism yeah 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 oh that's interesting i, th- I would have thought his uh one of his major influences would have been a contemporary with uh louis bonnell over in italy I-,
1: I can't speak to that because i don't know uh <laughs> but but they definitely uh, mentioned the German connection.
0: Yeah, because the, the surreal sequence in this in particular feels like it could have come out of a Bonnell film. But, you know, I me and Isaac, we have the same philosophy when it comes to these types of movies. For whatever reason, like, I'm happy to watch bonus material for almost anything. But when it comes to surrealist films, I feel like, yeah, it takes away part of the fun if you can't uh, figure it out for yourself. At least for me.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm not hardcore like you guys, I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> I need training wheels a lot of times
0: and i'm trying to think if there was any other lingering threads i had for this one i did want to mention i guess just for the uh the actress uh marianne ingrid uh, thulin i think that's how you say her name i don't know how to say these swedish words but uh, but i saw her recently in um this disaster movie called the cassandra crossing and i guess for a little while she was doing some italian work she was also in this this giallo that i saw uh, what's it called Oh, sh- sh- short night of the glass house. Oh, no, what, what was it called? Damn it, now i got to look this up. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't a great giallo, whatever whatever it was. <laughs> short night of the glass dolls, that's what it was. <laughs> I swear, anytime I hear giallo,
1: like, I hear Italian ice cream or something like an Italian sundae. Um,
0: I can see it. But if, if anyone's ever interested in seeing her uh, uh, do some nude scenes in her in her 40s, you know, she, she's nude in that giallo. So... <laughs> I'll just say
1: no, but that is interesting, though. I mean, not the nudity, but yes, <laughs> but the pointing out of Ingrid Thulin because because of this movie in particular, Wild Strawberries, mm-hmm. like it, it, like propelled her to the next level in her career. And so, right after this movie, she got she got offered and cast in like traditional Hollywood movies.
0: Oh, interesting! Hmm.
1: So she did at least three mainstream Hollywood movies after this.
0: Yeah, I guess that's why they would have put her into uh The Cassandra Crossing cuz that was although it was an Italian uh, disaster movie. They still brought in like a- Ava Gardner, Martin Sheen, um a couple other like random celebrities and then more international people. So so she fit right in with that cast. But yeah, the Jallo, I don't know. I guess that's just the that's just kind of like the the gutter that people fall into at a certain point in their career. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um one thing I was going to say or or one more thing, the last thing I was gonna think. So, the final scene, or the final dream sequence scene, where Isaac kind of sees that return to the family summer home, and he sees them mm-hmm. all about to get on the boat, and he's like, "Where's mother and father?" And I can't. Was it Sarah or someone said, "Oh, they're over there." Yeah. And so then he goes, and then there's this crazy, picturesque vision of his mother and father from a distance and his dad's like fishing and his mom is like sitting over there picnicking mm-hmm. or something. Now in the commentary the commentator was saying that I think this was um Isaac like finding his parents again and like coming to terms or to peace with them or something. Hmm. Um something like that. Like being at peace with like his mother and father or something. But, I mean, just me and my unsophisticated ways, that's not really the way I saw it. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Just for, and I don't even know, because again, I I don't even know how I am when it comes to interpreting these types of things, or dreams in general. But um, for me, it kind of almost seemed like And I know, again, this movie's not about death, but for some reason it almost felt like a death sequence to me or like an implied death sequence. Because for some reason, going back to the house one last time and everything looking perfect and seeing all the the relatives, uh, the siblings and everything, and then especially the parents at the end, Mm -hmm. for me it was almost like this. And maybe it's because I just watched a reaction video to um, the Eric Clapton song. Is it Tears from Heaven, the iconic um, Eric Clapton song that he wrote about his his young son's untimely death? Um, I think it's Tears from Heaven. Anyway, I almost took that as like seeing everybody in heaven, hmm. and and seeing everyone in this idealistic setting, aka heaven, and like reconnecting with like his parents there, and it almost reminded me also now that. This just jumped in my head right now it almost reminds me of um of of luke and the force ghosts at the end of return of the jedi <laughs> except except instead of seeing force ghosts you're sort of like dying yourself and seeing them in, in a familiar i mean not a familiar yeah, get, place but a, yeah a shared space
0: i see what you mean now yeah at first i was like uh i, I don't know <laughs> Which, by the way, because uh, we don't really get a good look at the dad, but it, I thought it kind of looked...
1: Exactly, like, or sort of.
0: I thought it looked like that guy that was playing the uh, the judge in the trial and then the husband in the car. I thought it looked like it was the same guy again.
1: Oh, I have no idea about that.
0: For me, I kind of took it as uh, an... ex. I don't know, I wasn't really sure how to take it. It definitely seemed like he was accepting something. And maybe it was just that, oh, I don't know. Now that I'm on the spot talking, I don't, I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> I know that I wasn't sure, but I also thought that he was going to die there, but I was glad that he didn't. But
1: Yeah, I don't say he did die, but it almost I took it as almost like, you know, like at the end of a Viking movie, like, or was it you who said you haven't seen Excalibur? Oh no. From 81.
0: Yeah, i definitely seen that. Oh,
1: you, you, you've seen Excalibur? Yeah. It's, uh, it's freaking Sean who hasn't seen Excalibur, which just blows my mind. But whether it's something like the Arthurian legend or it's like some type of Viking tale where they like send off the Patriarch or whomever, the hero, like onto the, um, onto the ship to Valhalla or whatever. Now, again, I'm not saying the character literally died in the movie or was about to literally die, but it's like his life was at peace now so that now he will have safe passage hmm. into the afterlife if that makes sense,
0: yeah. And either way, it was it was. Even though I was kind of perplexed by what that ending was, I still thought it was a beautiful way to end, with him being able to still find that peace as he's he's heading to sleep after such a such like an enormous day for him, kind of big shift day. That he would still go back to what he always did with remembering the the more idyllic days of his youth.
1: Yeah, and before we rate it or just give our final opinions, whatever we do, I'm not sure what we do on this podcast, <laughs> but. um I will just say this other last fun fact about Bergman. Apparently he was known for his lucid dreaming Hmm. um, and suppose, or, Oh, hold on. I don't know if lucid is the right word, but, and perhaps he was lucid dreaming, but actually what I meant to say was he was known for dreaming frequently and remembering his dreams in great detail after he woke up and supposedly all the ideas for all his stories were rooted in dreams that he had had supposedly
0: oh that's interesting yeah
1: well here's the thing though i you have to take everything i say that i'm passing on from the van with a grain of salt because again if bergman was still alive today and you said so is this true sir or is this true i kind of feel like he would say that's all bullshit but then again <laughs> i wouldn't know if he was lying
0: yeah that's that's yeah some of those filmmakers you just can't trust them george lucas type <laughs> in that way alone <laughs> Yeah, so I guess, yeah, coming around to the final thoughts for this one. Yeah, did did you want to go first, or you prefer if I go first?
1: You go first.
0: Yeah, Wild Strawberries. Yeah, when I finished watching it today, I was like, wow, I really enjoyed that movie. This kind of, uh... Again, like, these stories about people at that period in their life coming to the, the latter days and reflecting. Yeah, that just always hits me in a place. But I didn't really, uh... There was a lot of it that I didn't really think about too much until maybe maybe like an hour before we started recording. I was just starting to be like, okay, what am I actually going to say about this movie? <laughs> so even though I really enjoyed it. So I looked over the notes that I wrote and I still didn't really feel like I know what I was going to say, but 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 I don't think the the, the reading of it really uh, changed my, my opinion of it was just such a, a nice movie to sit down and just kind of experience. So I think if you're a casual viewer that doesn't want to put too much homework in, you can still enjoy it quite a bit but i think this this conversation itself and delving into those details more elevated it more in my mind and so if we were going to rate it i would probably give it a 4.5 out of 5.
1: whoa (laughs) holy shit
0: is that high i don't know i don't
1: know it it sounds like really high i mean like like you really liked it basically
0: yeah no I i thought it was great um which is
1: which is fine but
0: Out of the three that we've done, this is probably the one that hits my sweet spot the most for Bergman movies.
1: Wow. I wish there was some Woody... There's got to be at least one Woody Allen movie. I wish there was one Woody Allen movie that would hit you like that. There's got to be one. I I just don't know which one it is.
0: What was the one that was like a remake of the the Hitchcock uh, Strangers on a Train? What was that one called again? Oh, that was Match match Point. Match Point. I really like that. Um, It's definitely not... 4.5 4.5 but I really like that one.
1: Oh, I really like it too but it's, of course it's also atypical for Woody I mean you can tell yeah maybe that's why <laughs> it's atypical <laughs> but I haven't seen all his movies and I'm sure he has some other gems out there that I'm unaware of but anyway <laughs> this is not about him yes uh but yeah like I was so confused the first time I saw this two three years ago whatever it was I mean because it just seemed like yeah okay like another okay movie like if no one told me anything if i hadn't read anything i wouldn't have thought this was that significant a movie just like oh it's a pleasant thing like when you have those um those tins that come with all the different types of cookies like it's just like a um uh what do you call those cookies um there's an i can't think of the name of the cookie the type of cookie but the ones that you just oh shortbread Mm. shortbread like oh i like shortbread Mm, this is good But it's not like what is this? What is this amazing cookie? Like it's it's just it's it's like it's just basic. It just hits a spot, but it's nothing to write home about. Um, And that's how it would have seemed to me in a vacuum. Like I definitely wouldn't have been aware without reading things and hearing things. And then I had the exact same thing, which is this is one of those movies that you you have like when you talk it out. Uh, it's like, oh my God, there's so much. There's so much more here. There's so much more going on, and I kind of feel like that applies to every Bergman movie. That huh. if you just talk it out, um, and that's the thing. That's the thing about all his movies. Like, um, you said, it, it is accessible in the sense that anybody could just watch and go, oh, okay, that's that's nice. But my normie friends who are not cinephiles, I feel like they just watch this and be like, okay, that's it. Like, I get it, the guy reflected on his life, but that's it. Like, nothing crazy happened, nobody died. Um, he didn't, like, win something at the end, or... I mean, he did win something, but, I mean, from a Normie's perspective, it was just like... Oh, okay. Huh. That's it. I just wasted 90 minutes of my life.
0: Ah, uh, well, Yeah, you really think they would have that, I, I guess?
1: Yes, well, at least my normie friends and i don't think my normie friends are the same as your normie friends
0: well most of my most of my friends aren't movie friends most people that i know that's that's why I, meeting isaac was such like a, a sunny moment because <laughs> everyone that i knew was they they were like our favorite franchise is fast and the furious and i would try to show the movies that i like and they would just be like uh like you, you like this what what could you possibly see in this <laughs> so
1: well that's saying. most of my friends are like yeah fast and furious top gun um, except that's really good um and other goofy stuff i don't know uh stuff that i I just couldn't i just couldn't
0: yes i'm more thinking of the audience that would just you know stumble across it and be willing to watch a black and white movie like this you know which i feel like is in itself a tall kind of entry point for some folks these days
1: although all the gen zers and millennial types they're all over Letterboxd. I, mean, huh. I mean I mean I it blows me away. It blows me away the people who I encountered on there who were like thirty and under and are watching all these movies from the thirties, forties, fifties, like and and not just main like obscure stuff too. It just blows me away on Letterboxd. But that's its own obviously self-selecting group. Yeah. Um, hey, I love it.
0: I love I love to hear <laughs> that.
1: <laughs> It's it's crazy. It's crazy. But I'm dancing around my own opinion. You know, first time I saw this movie I probably gave it a flaccid three. Talking about it more, I'm certainly boosting it up to like three and a half, four range. But honestly, it probably is a four and a half. It's just gonna take me even more time to like fully take it in and vibe it and really like because, you know, I've seen, I don't know, approximately twelve bergman films now in total and this is considered in his like top two mm. uh, oftentimes like this and seventh seal i know they both came out the same year. oh no this seventh seal and persona are kind of considered like his three best movies as much as i've enjoyed a bunch of his movies like those aren't my picks at this point huh. of my favorites not one of those three so i don't know it's interesting it's interesting
0: yeah that's that's funny persona would be definitely (laughs) at the bottom of the three that we've done so far even though i like persona but i just think the oh uh...
1: yeah of the three we've done yes i would say so but my gosh that movie like it has such the reputation in in movie circles and the image um that's on the the I think it's on the cover of this box. Yeah, it's the cover of the Igmar Bergman box, mm-hmm. which is like an iconic image from the Persona movie. That I see that image all over the place, like where people make
0: it like phone cases
1: or you know whatever.
0: Oh, interesting. Hmm.
1: It's just like, yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, maybe on a rewatch because I only saw that one once, and I was I was planning to watch this one twice. I just <laughs> decided to go bowling instead, and I missed my chance. Um so I feel like Well,
1: you can always watch it on your own time at a later date.
0: That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> but on a first viewing I, I definitely yeah, like this one a lot. Um and so it will be will be added to my, my rotation. For whatever reason. I just there there's some movies that just sit with me and I know that I'm gonna revisit them in like less than a year. And I feel like this is one of those films. Well, that's
1: I don't it's I don't know what to say. I think it's really cool. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I don't Bergman has some kind of weird magic and I don't know I think I I guess the ongoing theme in all his movies is I guess just interpreting his personal demons and personal thoughts and then making them into a movie and I guess somehow there's some alchemy that happens there that it connects with a wider audience Mm -hmm. because because he really does deep into like dig deep into his inner strife and puts it out there
0: Mm, I don't know yeah that's that's honest. That's dangerous, and yeah, that's. I would imagine it'd be very uh, troubling trying to do it as a person, <laughs> trying to put yourself out there in that way. Because if the movie fails, it almost feels like it's like you're naked in front of them, and you're this failure. You know? I would think. I don't know, but
1: yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But there you have it. And I don't know what's going to be next on the Bergman train, but I really can't wait to get into whatever it is
0: yeah yeah I'm, I'm excited to maybe branch into some of his older stuff i'm definitely very curious well, I... So I think this is the oldest we've gone so far
1: oh certainly certainly but it's just man like like I, I said this at some point if you compare his early early stuff to his later later stuff it's like it's like comparing early Beatles to late Beatles. you're like how are these the same group or same person <laughs> like serious it's so like what how in the world but yeah
0: oh but thank you very much for for this pick i i very much enjoyed it and i'm very much looking forward to whatever we uh next time yeah you're picking next oh okay (laughs) sure but until then peace